Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Crux. I'm here with my partner, Mike Fernandez. Hello, Mike. How you doing? And also here uh, with our producers in studio, Amanda and Rachel. By the way, one thing I said last week or a few weeks ago, I want to correct that Amanda was a Yankee fan. Oh, you are a Yankee fan. Oh, okay. I got it wrong. It's the reverse. So I want to correct that um, Amanda is a Yankee fan and there's some DiMaggio in your family, right? Is that? Grandpa's cousin. Wow. So I really got it wrong. If you by, had, by the way, yeah. uh, Joe DiMaggio has a special place in my family in the sense that I gave my father a signed baseball from Joe DiMaggio. And when I did it, it had the most incredible response. I mean, my father actually broke into tears. Wow. So. Oh, yeah. There he, you go. Royalty. Royalty. Yeah, he <laughs> was American royalty. That's no doubt. So, hey, so welcome back. Like I said, we got a few things we want to talk about this week, but I, I, I read something um, that I really was stunned by, and it's part of a trend we're seeing among some uh, leading investors and uh, business leaders, and it's Ray Dalio's um, two-part uh, series. He posted it on LinkedIn. You can go there and just search Dalio, you know, Ray Dalio, D-A-L-I-O, and when, why and how capitalism needs to be reformed. And it was also the subject. Uh, this is coming from a business leader. Right. He's, uh, you know, worth, I think, like $18 billion, Bridgewater Associates. Can is, I get along? His <laughs> firm, right? One of the best investors in the world. He's the guy who called the financial crisis back when no one else was, back in 20, 2007, 2008. And so he is like on a crusade and was a part of a, Mike, of a, a 60 Minutes piece where it really profiled him a little bit more, but he talks about his concerns about capitalism in this country, and he basically says it's a national emergency. Um, I'll give you one statistic and then tell you a couple other things um, that he said. Um, and most of the, the data is on his LinkedIn um, post, but prime age workers in the bottom 10% had no real income growth since 1980. That means with inflation uh, adjusted, none. No income growth in, you know, prime age workers. And in that time, the income of the top 10 percent doubled and the top 1 percent tripled. And that's his point about this income inequality. And he just sees. You got to think that's going to play into the presidential campaign. uh, Completely. And into um, the reason I bring it up here is the work that corporate communicators are doing. And and so Dalio joins uh, Larry Fink. You know, maybe the best investor in the world mm-hmm. uh, in, in bringing this about. I've seen Jamie Dimon talk about it um, recently, bringing up this topic. And Bill Gates has long been um, an advocate for economic policies. Uh, now, Dalio goes into he thinks rich people like him should be taxed more. And there's some other ideas that he has. But uh, just on a, on a commu- communications standpoint, he thinks he said 60, 40, 65, 35, that we're headed for a bad result on this. That, mm-hmm. you know, economies where, and in societies where 
this kind of divide is allowed to continue, mm -hmm. usually end up in some kind of revolution or action, well, et cetera. And, and, and you know, as, as a former chief communications officer, as do I, that over time, we've seen more and more attention given to executive compensation. When that sort of universal story comes out every year about what everybody made, mm. there seems to be more of a caterwaul than ever before. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's fundamental to what we're seeing, I think, with employees insisting that their CEOs become active more in social policy. Yeah. Right. Not only on things like immigration, the immigration ban that we saw a lot of activism on um, at the start of the Trump term, but in other things beyond human rights. And I always felt like CEO activism would be real Yeah. when some of the CEOs said, wait a minute, we really don't need a tax cut, right? That, right. that would be a change. Saying things about human rights around LGBTQ+, or maybe the need for this country to embrace immigration, to me seemed easy, Mike. Well, and, 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 and some of those policies actually benefited companies. I mean, right. they made them more diverse and inclusive. Exactly. You know, they, they, they got uh, new labor from, from other sources, other countries. So both of those two issues actually were positive yeah. and, and may have actually helped feed the success of some of these companies yep. that opted to actually pay their executives more. Right, right. Uh, so, so kind of an interesting That's play. Right. So the question is, is at what point, when we're talking kind of in a more transparent world, uh, what is it that a corporation or that an executive needs to do to gain, you know, uh, real authenticity around being corporately responsible. Yeah, and Dalio's answer to that question, he answered this on 60 Minutes. Bill Whitaker, I think, was the, the interviewer last night. Um, radical truthfulness mm -hmm. is his um, one of his principles, and radical transparency. Mm -hmm. So inside the organization, really talking about the issues in a truthful way, in a non-political way, even in organizations. So, for example... Do rich people in this country need a tax cut? Does an Amazon need a tax cut at this point? Mm -hmm. And his answer is no, mm -hmm. right? They need a tax increase yeah. uh, to help bridge this gap. So uh, I just thought it's really interesting because this tide among some of the best investors in the world seems to be getting bigger. And I just think that uh, it's one of the most disruptive forces either way, right. whether we respond to it or not for corporate communicators um, and for society as a whole. And Dalio was a very level-headed guy. Mm -hmm. In fact, he wrote a book last year called Principles that I right. highly recommend um, that really talks about leadership um, mm -hmm. in a really interesting way. And those two things that I just mentioned, truthfulness and transparency, are, are part of that. So Yeah. No, I, I remember reading it myself and, and, and reflected on one of the things that uh, Greg Page, the former chairman and CEO of Cargill, once said, yeah. which is, in a world where nothing can be hidden, you better not have anything to hide. To hide, exactly. That's a great thing. Now, this week, um, Mike, and I, you and I have one thing in common, or m many things in common, the Yankees being one of them. Another is... is um, being press secretaries and yeah. working for politicians in that respect. And, and you were one of the youngest, if I can recall, yeah. right, press uh, secretaries? The last to time it, it was told to me was that when I was selected by Senator Fritz Hollings, a Democrat from South Carolina, as his press secretary back in 1980, 
I was 23 years old. Wow. And at that time, was the youngest press secretary in the history of the U.S. Wow. Uh, uh, but but all of that said, you know, these are one great training grounds yes. for what we would both I later really do. I really agree. Because you know, you uh, work hard, play hard, work long hours. You deal with crises. You deal with multiple issues at once. Uh, you get very facile very quickly, mm-hmm. uh, or you don't survive. Right. And and you also have to build trust with the principal that you're dealing with. And you have to build lots of trust uh, with national news media very quickly. I mean, you worked for a New York governor. Uh, I worked for a highly visible United States senator mm-hmm. at the time. Um, these are these are not these are really easy jobs. Easy jobs, and and you don't get paid a lot in them. Either. Exactly, and the hours. But I, you know, maybe it's because of my background, I'm saying it. I think the best training ground mm-hmm. for corporate communications, because you bring that public affairs Absolutely. knowledge, that political knowledge, and you know how to get things done. Yeah. Right? And you're usually understaffed, right? Yeah, and there's maybe you and one or two other people, or you've got a small staff that's exactly. doing little things. But yeah. 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 So I just I brought this up because yeah. Senator Hollings passed away. Yeah, he did. At 97. 97 so, years old. So tell us something about the senator that maybe we don't know and what you learned from him, Mike. Yeah. You, you know, the, the, there are both political lessons as well as work lessons. Uh, but one of the the most fantastic things with him in terms of working for him is, like I said, who would put trust in a 23-year-old exactly. to manage your, you know, what you, how you are perceived by the public? Um, and he did that based on kind of what I'd already done to that point, mm-hmm. but he also did it. And, and I got more license to help him uh, by demonstrating, you know, what I could do for him. But what I admired most about the man uh, was here was a guy who uh, earlier on in his career, he uh, helped show the way for uh, integration mm-hmm. in South Carolina. Yeah. And years before, there were yeah. a lot of problems in other southern states mm-hmm. from Arkansas to Alabama to even next door in North Carolina. Right. Um, he integrated the state university system. He integrated uh, the state police force, what they call the sled agents in the right. state. Uh, but also, it was the way he approached his job. So, yes, there were political positions that he had to take representing a state like South Carolina that had textile mills mm-hmm. and had tobacco and, and lots of those kinds of issues, right? But on those issues that weren't just about advancing the cause for South Carolina, he was incredibly earnest. I mean, he he would do things like, I mean, he, he'd get the latest public policy research on, wow. right, and he'd get different points of view. I can remember during the Iran, the Iran-Contra affair. Different points affair, of view. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. The, the <laughs> Iran-Contra affair, he reached out to experts in Central American uh, and defense policy. And one day I witnessed there was somebody who was kind of in the middle, there right. was somebody who was to the left, and someone who was the right. He invited them to his office at the same time. Wow. And he cross-examined them, you know, like like the trial lawyer yeah. he, he had previously been. He was, been. yes, yeah. exactly. And uh, in order to get a better understanding of what was actually taking place. And and, and similarly, he was, he was a master at dealing across the aisle and with 
people in the Senate who didn't agree with him eye to eye. Yeah. And so he was able to forge very interesting coalitions in order to get environmental laws Things passed, done. Yeah. create, you know, NOAA. You know, the National Organization for, yeah. you know... Uh, Atmospheric uh, Administration, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we don't know. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but he was... Uh, uh, he, he was a phenomenal guy. Oh, a towering figure. Yeah. You know, I mean, really, young people listening to this might not recognize the name. Yeah. But for all the reasons Mike just mentioned, a really respected and, as you say... Um, Earnest in wanting to know facts, uh-huh. wanting to listen to people, uh-huh. which unfortunately doesn't happen as yeah. much as it well, used to. Well, I can remember when the Challenger space shuttle blew up right. like 72, 73 seconds after yeah. it launched. Uh, you know, we he he was the leading Democrat on the Commerce Committee, which oversees NASA's programs, and he was he was in it. I mean, he was asking questions about the seals on these O-rings, right? And um, it he wasn't going to let go yeah. until he got a clear understanding. Exactly, great crisis study, by the mm-hmm. way, of of that. Well, um, uh, you know, he was. Uh, a great man. He ran for president. You were on his campaign. Too. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's back in 1984. Wow. Uh, there, there's a there's an interesting story uh, on that. Speaking of crisis, uh, literally, we went in in the fall of of 1983 to a one of these. Um, you know, they have these caucus events yep. where they do a straw vote. Oh right. You know, ahead of yep. the event actually taking place, and. Um, he came in third, and it was a big surprise. He came in ahead of John Glenn. He came in ahead wow. of Gary Hart. Yeah. Came ahead, you know, and number one was Walter Mondale. Uh, number two, it was Alan Cranston, the senator from sure. California, California at the time. Yeah. And I got a call from David Yepsen, who at the time was the political reporter for the Des Moines Register. And he said, you know, the story we're going to go with tomorrow is that Hollings was the big surprise. Surges, yeah. You know, that, that, and it was because he'd been in the news around his, his Hollings budget freeze at the oh, time. Oh, right, yeah. And uh, so anyway, we go, I get the senator to go. I said, all you got to do is be upbeat, confident, uh, say, you know, it's obvious that people are listening to yeah, our yeah, ideas. Resonating. We've yeah. got We've got some momentum, got some, you know, wind behind us, and, and that's what you're seeing. Well, David Yepsen was very positive, you know, in the way he dealt with right. me on the phone the right. night before. We go to this coffee shop, this little diner. And, in uh, Iowa. In Iowa, in yeah. Des Moines. Yeah. And talking with him, and of course, he asks a different question of the senator. <laughs> and the question he asks of the senator is he says, so, Senator, you did really well last night, but in a lot of people's eyes, but why didn't you do better? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the senator goes south on me. Oh, yeah. And he says, well, you know, Walter Mondale's from right next door in Minnesota. Yes. And he brought in a lot of people to participate in last night's, you know, yeah. straw vote straw at the vote. dinner. Yeah. And, and Alan Cranston has all this early union support. And he also brought people from, uh, from all over yeah. and from out of state. He says, it's like bringing in a bunch of wetbacks. Ooh. So here I am. 
My last name is Fernandez. Yes. I'm um, dealing with instant crisis. It would have been much worse in yeah. the day of uh, having an internet right. and being always on. Uh, but it was bad enough uh, that, yeah. because for about two, three weeks, I was dealing with nothing but that this question. issue and yeah. that question uh, relative to the news media. And so what would you say, Mike? What was the... Well, what he meant to say was no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's uh, not much to say there. Is the reason I but, asked but it. actually used it as a teachable moment. Yeah. So he, I, I said, you know, the only way to get by this in today's environment is you're going to have to spend some time with leadership in the Latino and the Hispanic community. Yeah. And so we brought in like 60 some odd different groups that he met with. And he did so. Interesting. And Great idea. From that, he also became an advocate for immigration reform and supported Simpson-Mazzoli, right, which right. was the Reagan era Reagan, you know, yes. uh, immigration reform package. Yeah. He probably wouldn't have done that if that instant H- hadn't, hadn't happened. Hadn't. So he, it, the New York Times wrote, wrote a story about him, uh, about how he did learn, how he did evolve over time. Uh, by by some interesting lessons. Yeah. Well, that's a great story and, and really illustrative of why these jobs are so, such tight ropes, yeah. but such great learning yeah. experience yeah. for young well, kids. Well, and then on the other side, you know, we look at what's happening today and we have people in politics who seemingly have 10 ears about yes. doing anything that's collaborative, anything that's going to evoke compromise. Right. And you have a situation right now at the White House where they seemingly can't even fill the top communications the, role. Exactly. So this is something I, I, I wrote. I have a little blog, uh, spokesman.com. And this was back probably a year ago now when they hired their second uh, communication. what are we up to now? Six. Six. So you, it was a third Do you one. want the I'm job, sorry. Gary? Yeah, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> My daughters would abandon ship, Mike, <laughs> if they did. But it was Mike Dubke. He's a real pro, and I've known him. And he you know, he lasted a couple months in, in the communication job. And I wrote a blog that said, and I, no, nobody reads my blog, my wife, you know, um, myself, you know, that kind of thing. Good thing you have children. Yeah, I know. And <laughs> and and I said, here's some some ideas, Mike, on you know how to do the job. Tell the truth. It's liberating. All these kinds of things. And it just took off, and got a lot of readership. Um, and so I, I really felt I was telling Mike, or yeah. humbly, yeah. A, a giving him some advice. And I recently wrote another one of these blogs, saying, please don't take the job uh-huh. because. Uh, it's obvious they're not serious. They don't understand what communications is. They're not serious about the job. And they don't do one of the things that Fritz Hollings did. Listen. Listen. Exactly. Exactly. And and uh, I wrote it from the perspective of our profession mm-hmm. that I do think what's going on in Washington, and particularly with that visibility into the White House press press briefing room, which sort of doesn't exist anymore because they don't do it, is really causing damage to the reputation of our pro- profession as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they've gone through six communications directors, counting the guy who was named uh, before the transition or before he took office and never really got there because of some scandal. So there are six. And I, I just think it's bad for the profession. It it creates a stereotype about what we do and spinning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in 16 years. As I'm C- all for rinse. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it, that's what I say. If you're spinning, you're losing. And uh, 16 years at GE, nobody asked me to lie. And if they did, I would have quit. That's right. And uh, so uh, I I think, again, not to pick on the White House or the Trump administration, but for our profession, 
uh, I'd rather that job go unfilled than somebody else step up and and uh, pretend mm-hmm. honestly that they're a communicator. Yeah. Good. Well, listen, that's the crux for this week. Mike, anything to add? No, this is great. Yeah, it's been a great week. Again, thanks to Amanda of Yankee Fandom and Rachel of Red Sox Fandom. And uh, we'll see you again soon. Take care. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. Welcome back to The Crux. Last week, we had a great discussion with Matt Murray, who's the editor of the Wall Street Journal. In fact, it was so good, we wanted him back for another week. Last week, Matt talked a lot about the challenges of delivering news in a digital era. This week, we're going to talk about some of the things that he's really interested in covering at the Journal as we go through the rest of 2019 and into, of course, an election year in 2020. So let's go back to that interview that I did with Matt Murray, editor of the Wall Street Journal. So we're having a discussion in the uh, PR industry, and and we've been having it with some journals, including some of your folks from the journal. You know, this relationship between um, uh, people in in corporate and on corporate teams who do media relations and PR and journalists. And it started with a a column by Steve Perlstein in the Washington Post maybe a year ago now um, saying, you know, the end, I think the title was the end of um, business reporting, that uh, in-house PR people aren't useful anymore to journalists. They don't have the leverage to gain access to senior executives. They don't know enough about their company or their technology and products. On On the other hand, Uh, Journalists uh, or corporate communicators are saying it's tougher to have a conversation with a journalist because of less experience, uh, the need for clickability, et cetera. So, you know, that's a lot to ask you. But what's your view on all of that, the relationship between companies and journalists and trying to ensure that all the things you said, accurate, fair, balanced, everything that you went through, what's the state of play? Well, I think I think the concerns that that you know you're reflecting that have been written about or spoken about on both sides are are are, are probably fair. I think I think um, on the journalist side, you know, I worry sometimes about the ecosystem that journalists uh, we, uh, the ecosystem when I, when I was starting out as a journalist and you too, you know, when we were young, there there was a large, robust, vibrant, lively group of. Uh, newspapers and, and news organizations across this country that were well-staffed. And, and to work your way up, you kind of had to earn your bones out mm-hmm. there. You had to be in a different part of the country around different people and learn different things and learn to talk to people from different backgrounds than you and learn to get information. And a lot of people didn't want to talk to the local paper. It's a lot different than calling up from the Wall Street Journal, where, as you know, <laughs> when, I call a company, when, when we call a company, they pretty much have to respond exactly. to us to some degree. You know, they're nervous that... It, but so 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 by the time and I'm not saying I was a brilliant reporter, but by the time I got here and many of my peers had gotten here, we, we'd had some experience and we had to work our way up to the journal, and it was just different. Today, I right. think there, there's it's a different it's a different group coming in. In many ways, a much more accomplished, smarter bunch of people than I was. But but they might have a little uh, 
less knowledge of, of, of sort of basic uh, interactivity on reporting and how, to, and how to elicit information. Right. Of course, a corporate, uh, on the corporate end, I would say, I, I, I mean, I don't have a good enough feel broadly for what Steve Perlstein is saying, except to, except to say I always felt that I still feel a lot depends on the, deg- uh, uh, the degree to which a company values its public relations and to which any CEO recognizes a certain ownership of and engagement with public relations being important to their job, that means everything for the value exactly. of PR. Yeah. Yes. So if, if, if they don't care about PR, they think they know it all, and they treat the department like whatever any bad press comes, it's their fault, and whatever any good press comes, it's because of the boss. Right. And PR person doesn't have a seat at the strategy table. I never found PR people in that position to be any good. Yeah, um, totally right. You know, so so I don't think that's that different, except to say in the tech world, I think some tech executives think that they've reinvented everything and are geniuses in, in ways that they aren't. <laughs> but on the other hand, I would also say probably more CEOs, I mean, it's, it's hard to say in the aggregate, more CEOs to me probably recognize that public communications and PR is a core part of the job that maybe recognized 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, I, you know, I think um, I think you're right about that. And I always thought the worst thing that a leader could say in a company was uh, they don't like us, that that reporter doesn't like us, that publication doesn't like us, because it becomes an excuse for other people in the company not to engage with the world, with the media. And and I think that, you know, I just think that's a bad, bad strategy. I mean, what's weird about the world today, I think, is on the one hand, companies have more direct access to constituents than they've ever had. They don't need the media as an interlocutor in the way that they might once have because they've got Twitter and these other things. On the other hand, those same technologies can so affect or shape a company's reputation or cause a crisis so quickly in a way that didn't used to be the case that you're always living on the edge. Um, Look, I think the last thing I'd say, um, because it's, and and you and I both, we, we, we dealt with this, you know, a lot also, this is a, this can be a, there are black and white rules, but for both reporter and, and communications or public relations person, it, it's a, it's a, it's a gray area sometimes right. where you have to have, you're, you're both serving different constituencies. You don't have the same interests, but if you're doing your jobs well, you both recognize the importance of accuracy and truthfulness and the limits of spin right. and, you know, a good reporter never misleads the company about what they're writing, even if they don't reveal everything. And a good PR person uh, never lies or lets the reporter print a mistake, even if uh, they don't reveal everything that they know. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, no, well said. Exactly. Spot on. Spot on. So, so listen, uh, one, a couple of last questions here. You became editor-in-chief of arguably the most important news organization in the world at a pretty unique time um, and, and in a n- unique situation. Arguably. Yeah, well, exactly. And, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I thought Jinwa was the most important. That's news right. That's right. But, but, so, uh, oh, I think the crux is, I think the crux is. Probably, <laughs> <laughs> but, but Matt, so you come in, you know, the journal is owned by, the Murdochs, and um, you know, we're so so bitterly divided in this country, and people look at things skeptically sometimes, both on the news pages and on the opinion pages. Um, but from your experience, you've not had—I uh, I saw you quoted elsewhere. 
you know, any influence on how you play coverage of what's going on in Washington or with the president at this point? Is that still the case? Yeah, no, I get I get no influence, no no interference on that front at all. Yeah. Do you do you feel responsibility, Matt, again as, you know, editor of the journal to push back? I, you're very involved in journal journalism. I know you were part of the, you know, helped the Columbia graduate program in journalism. Yeah. So yeah. it's sort of in your blood. Do you feel like a responsibility just as a being a member of the profession to push back on the fake news um you know, stuff that comes out of Washington? Or is that is that somebody else's job? Well, it's tricky, you know, Gary. I'm not sure if I've got it 100% right. Yeah. I certainly, I certainly look, when, 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 when our paper, when our staff, when our stories come under attack or criticism that I think is unfair or inaccurate or wrong or, or potentially even dangerous, I certainly speak up. Yeah. Um, I certainly try to take a role in the profession. I, I joined the board of the Committee to Protect Journalists recently, which I was very happy to do. Oh, good for you, yeah. An organization. I, I, um, uh, you know, and, and so we're, we're given the opportunity there to speak out on behalf of journalism. I, I will take it and, and do it. Uh, so, so I think certainly uh, there's, I have a role to play there that I want to play. I think secondly. So part of the best thing I can do and the most important thing I can do on a day-to-day basis, I, I think, is model and be a model of what I think excellent journalism is. Right. And here we have to be honest with ourselves at times in the profession. Um, you know, uh, the president and people using fake news as a, as a rallying cry are stepping up attacks that have long, frankly, been part of the profession and come with the territory. Right. And the best way to fend off those attacks is to practice a grade-A journalism. Right. Have your facts straight. Uh, don't take points of view. Don't be partisan advocates in the news pages and the news stories. Uh, play it straight. Talk to all sides. Demonstrate excellence. If you make a mistake, admit it openly and talk about the mistake. Don't make too many mistakes because your practices are so clear. Yeah, exactly. And, I, and I, 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 think, I think we're in some danger in the profession of hurting ourselves by letting the fake news attacks pull us into a debate in which we can't help but come off as advocates or partisans and become exactly. another interest group, and then we've lost the game. If right. we're just another interest group, game over. We've lost the game, and I think that. Look, I don't. I think. I think uh, what the president says routinely. By the way, what the president says routinely is partly hypocritical because. He's actually incredibly engaged with all the members of the press and talks to reporters all the time in a way that, like, President Obama never did. So he's very dependent on the press. Yes. But it's a tactic. It's a technique. I don't want to take his bait. And, and look, I think if anything, I mean, all journalists should remember at all times that no presidents or particularly politicians in either party, by the way, should like us. We shouldn't want them to like exactly. Them. We should like them. We shouldn't hate them, but we're not there to be friends. Right. We're there to report on them and do the news. And they should take their lumps. And if they want to give us grief, we should shrug it off. Uh, uh, broadly, broadly speaking, exactly. You, you get what I'm saying? Oh, so, totally. Yeah. If it. So, so you know, I, I, I don't think it helped when, when the president. We don't do this too much anymore. But early in his presidency, when the president would make some outrageous statement about something. And 5,000 journalists would go in on Twitter and give it right back to him. I thought, well, he's winning. Right. That's, that's what he wants us to do. Why right. are we doing it? Exactly. So, and it, Matt, that's the same exact thing I, 
I advise some of my clients uh, on the corporate side. When he tweets about you, ignore him. He yeah. wants some friction. You know, it's a heat-seeking missile seeking friction. You know, so just leave it alone. Yeah, and, and I, I think I think most people get that. I mean, we yeah. have, we've wrestled at times about our social presence, but I think one of the things a lot of journalists have learned, sadly and frustratingly, because it is a weapon and a tool used used to, to squelch us, is uh, you know there are a lot of trolls and people online actively looking to hurt you. And you know what I tell our staff is. I'm not against you being online in that sense, but the best way to make your point about journalism is practice good journalism. Exactly. Get, write good stories. Uh, don't get into. Don't waste your time arguing with somebody on Twitter. Excellent. Excellent. Last question. I'll let you go. Is um, so listeners are you know folks in the PR industry very interested in what is on the agenda for the Wall Street Journal. What kind of stories are you really interested in covering right now? Well, uh, we are beefing up partly in relation to Apple News, uh, partly for that audience. You know, we have a new deal where we're on Apple yep. News. We, so let's give us a chance to hire again. So I should say we are going to be doing more on politics, more on general news, more on sports, more on life and art, getting into some, 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 some areas more fully there. That's exciting. I'd say on the corporate and markets level, uh, very interested in uh, on ongoing basis technology. We're doing some expanding there, and I would expect to do more on technology. Um, watching markets closely, we have a plan to reinvent some of our markets coverage more digitally later this year. Nice. Uh, we'll be reporting uh, how where we're watching the economy very closely. Yes. I think sometimes, almost schizophrenically, I fear that there are days where one week we have a story that says things are <laughs> heading down, and the next week we have a story that says they're heading up. Uh, but that's the kind of economy that we're in. That's right. right. Now. That reflects the the reality. You know, and and I, I, look, I think uh, I think it it is in, in the business markets economic space. I mean, the there are a couple of macro stories, and the biggest one is how technology is forcing change in everything and how it's done yes. throughout. And we're early on in that wave, and it's incredibly dynamic and exciting and interesting and terrifying story all at once. And the more we can help people navigate that, the better. Yeah. That, 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 to me, to me, that's what we're here for. I, I, the la and the last thing I, I guess I'd say is I, I keep wanting to find new ways for us to write more about ideas. You know, I interesting. I meet a lot of, I meet a lot of CEOs uh, who, you know, if, you, if you're the CEO of uh, GE, let's say, or or BlackRock or something, you, at this point in time, thanks to the digital revolution, you have news sources and access to world leaders exactly that go well beyond us. But what a lot of people are craving because we're in such a hectic, crazy, confusing, fast-paced time is um, ideas and stimulation Interesting. and intellectual nourishment. And I think if we can provide more of that, uh, Interesting. that's helpful. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. That's a great, great, uh, great focus. Well, listen, Matt, I want you to know that this morning I opened up my Apple News and I got <laughs> a notice immediately that my Wall Street Journal um, subscription was up and I immediately re-upped. So Excellent. through Apple News. So there you go. One success story uh, you can talk about in the newsroom there. So, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so listen, Matt, thank you very much for your time. I know how busy you are. This has been fantastic and uh, really appreciate you being on. Thanks, Gary. I'm, I'm thrilled to be on. Glad to connect with you and appreciate the questions. It's been fun. Terrific. Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. 
And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.